Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today's episode needs little in the way of introduction. The great Glenn Fleischman returns, and we talk some more about Amazon's founding mythologies, as well as that recent New York Times article about the Amazon work culture that got so much attention. And towards the end, we talk at length about what the web revolution has meant for writers as opposed to the companies and publishers, which we have already covered at great length. So please enjoy Glenn Fleischman. Glenn Fleischman, thanks for coming back on the Internet History Podcast. It is a pleasure to be here, Brian. Well, Glenn, we have a whole grab bag of things that have been piling up over the months (laughs) to to, (laughs) to bring you on and talk about again. Um, What I wanted to start with were... Several several times over the last several months, um, Amazon has been coming up, and you've been commenting on on Twitter. And uh, back in May, um, you were making you were you got in a couple conversations about the hagiography of the legend of of Amazon and and its foundings and, and things like that. Um, and I think I said to you in our first time we talked that. Amazon's been the hardest company for me to kind of get the history right because it does seem to be all legend. And even a place like eBay where the they admit they they gave up the <laughs> ghost on on the legend of the Pez dispenser at eBay and stuff and so you can get the real story but Amazon it's it's hard to poke through. So let's from your and with the caveat that this is all from your perspective. Correct. Um what are some of the issues that or were some of the items or some of the things about the legend of Amazon's founding and, and early days that you feel like are just that, are just legend that have been burnished to make, you know, make history look good? Oh, sure. And I'll, and I'll point out, I don't know if I mentioned this in the previous podcast. I may have. But, uh, you know, I met Jeff Bezos in, I want to say, summer of, gosh, was it 94? Now I'm blanking out which year it was. When did they, they launch? It must have been summer of 95. And um, I think they started shipping books that summer, mm-hmm. and I had a receipt somewhere. I ordered some of the first books Amazon ever shipped in their private beta. And at some point, I was doing something years later, and a customer service person wrote to me and said, oh, I see some of your first books ordered from us were actually packed by Jeff Bezos. I'm like, yes, they were. Uh, and, um, you know, I've got a few, you know, so I, I ordered, <laughs> ordered Douglas Hofstetter book, of course, because that's what you order right, right, in right. those days. But I met Jeff very early on. I knew um, one of the uh, first employees uh, I did mention last podcast. Uh, he was a friend of my housemate at the time, as a computer science grad student, and um, I would have lunch with Jeff. And I had a successful internet company, and he was the startup with nothing. And I don't mean that in like the like, oh, he was an idiot. Go whatever. He had he was raised. I wasn't raising money. I had like a a little boutique business, and he was raising money and building the thing up, and it was growing and it was exciting. But I'd have lunch with him regularly, and. You know, I would I would I'd interview him for some uh, tech articles, and you know, I wasn't like an Amazon promoter, but it was sort of he was his offices were only a few blocks away. Ultimately, when they moved downtown, I had an office and a you know fancy Class A building. They were in a, the heroin district of Seattle. Um, so, uh, and then the tide the tide shifted because I never wanted to get big. I didn't raise money. I didn't do anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I I was talking to Jeff, and uh, and then in the company in. Uh, you know, in the very early days, so I saw stuff happening, and it is hilarious to me later 
when I read what people say happened because A, they weren't there or B, they were there and they seem to have forgotten. I don't think it's intentional because none of the people talking about it later have a stake in it. It's not like they're like, oh, this story, I have to tell it because it reaffirms my time there or whatever it was I was doing it. I think either legitimately they forgot or they weren't involved and they think they were because they were one person away. And I'm like, no, I actually I saw I saw this. What was going on? Um, well, and, and you had a, a unique perspective because you started out, you were almost like mentor kind of because you had already had you had a company up and running. And so early on, Jeff would come to you sometimes for advice. And then later on, you do join the company and, you know, you're you're one of the you know, one of the executives at the at early on with the company. So well, you, I, was, you, I, say, as a ma- I was a manager. I reached the executive mm-hmm. level. I reported to executives and I had a little bit of, I would say, power beyond my scope early on, which faded as they got a top heavy executive staff uh so i don't want to oversell what i did right. it was things like you know they were like we're trying to find a good internet service provider of all things i'm like oh i have this company i work with i introduced them uh i i gave them it wasn't you know no business advice at all it was mostly technical uh stuff and uh and that's part of what led jeff to offer me to you know said why don't you come and join us when i, I was really bored with my <laughs> business it wasn't going anywhere it wasn't getting any bigger and it was a lot of work and he's like hey come over here and uh Join what I'm doing. Right. Oh, so um, yeah. if, if you haven't listened to um, Glenn's first time on, I believe it's episode 48. Actually, don't quote me on that, but I, somewhere around episode 48 uh, from February 9th of, of early earlier this year. But so specifically, what are some of the things that now when you hear people, you read about or you hear people say about the early days that you're like, you know, that's that's just not how I remember it happening. Well, here's one that and I wasn't there for this, but this is one of the ones that gets me is the it's the epic journey driving across country. Jeff writing a business plan while Mackenzie, his wife, is driving and which didn't happen. And I don't know that he ever told the story. I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast. Jeff openly admits he has a terrible memory, real, a surprisingly bad, like experiential memory for somebody who is so brilliant. I don't know if the two go together. There's absent mindedness and so forth, but he really doesn't remember the past very well. And I think that plays into some of the stories that get told because he doesn't contradict them because he's like, I don't know, maybe that's how it happened. And, uh, but, um, he never, they did drive across country, but they drove to Texas. He'd already written the business plan while he was at uh, D.E. Shaw. Um, because he was examining new fields. He went to Texas where his grandparents and parents were and then they drove to Seattle after that and they hooked up with some people they knew and they started you know, rolling into raising some money um, starting with uh, Nick Hanauer uh, who's the, was the head of Pacific Coast Feathers. His family owned that company and then uh, Nick went on to found Avenue A with uh, including one of my former bosses at Amazon. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that epic writing the business plan in the passenger seat while your wife is driving thing is like, well, that's not really what happened, but it, it's sort of a founding myth and you hear it repeated a lot uh, because it's romantic. It's like, no, we actually, that's not, not really. What right. And, and he had already, really. he had already attempted to hire Shell Caffin. I don't know if I had spoken to Shell. Oh, uh, I don't know. didn't know that. That's I did. Yeah. There's a the episode right around yours. Um, I did a, an interview with Shell. Oh, I haven't listened to the whole one. Okay. Yeah. I've listened yeah. to part of that. Ah. So yeah, as I understand it. Um, so like, like, so that legend is sort of, it kind of is designed to be like, you know, I'm just figuring things out as I go along. But, you know, based on what you're saying and also Shell's timeline, you know, he's already plotting it out. He's already determined that Seattle is probably where he wants to be for all the reasons that, you know, the the sales tax issue versus California, also the, the proximity to the, 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 the uh, book distributors and things like that. So. Yeah, I forgot if we talked about this, but there was a specific, was it called Northwest Pipeline or something like that? It was a book distributor in Seattle 
that was really quite large. It was a regional one, but it was large. Then you had the computer science department here. Uh, you had uh, unemployment, like we had a higher unemployment rate, I think, when he came out here than the rest of the country. Uh, you had Boeing engineers looking for new things to do. You had the Roseburg, Oregon super warehouse of Ingram that was, uh, I forget what the drive is, like four-hour drive. Uh, away, uh, so all the, the the Northwest book distributor went out of business due to um, technical mismanagement. A few years, it was while I was there, they became incapable of actually doing anything because of failed um, software migration, and went out of business. But uh, that was you, so. Some books could be obtained uh, within like an hour or a day from just you know either from a warehouse down the street or from uh, you know a warehouse four hours drive away. Well, and another one that I, I think you even wrote a blog post about this is is the the famous door desk story, which still gets repeated constantly today. But so, what's from again from your point of view and your memory? What's what's the real story on that? Well, I saw receipts. This is why my story is valid. <laughs> As a journalist, I want to know how does this person know this, and I didn't keep receipts because I was working at a company. I probably would have violated the law if I'd photocopied them and taken them out. But so, yeah, the the creation myth is. Uh, well, they're so frugal. Instead of buying desks, they turned doors into desks. And you'd walk into Amazon in the early days, and I don't know when this changed because they moved into real office space at some point, uh, and everybody had a door as a desk. And there are some advantages to a door desk because doors are big and desks that you buy, you know, from a, uh, in those days there was a local uh, place called Duckies that's still around that sold used office supplies pretty cheaply. Or you go to Ikea or uh, any of the other stores that sell, you know, cheap office supplies. And, uh, you know, a desk was small, might have been flimsy, wasn't whatever, and a, a desk door had big square uh, bracketed legs in each corner, these two by twos or four by fours, or I think four by fours, or two by twos. And, um, but that was sort of part of the myth. It was like, oh, they are so frugal. I remember, I think I wrote this story in my post about it, is I, first time I met Jeff at his office in, um, I went to see the office in the in the heroin district, and I'm I'm not really kidding. It was the is it was the district in which people mm-hmm. sold heroin on that couple block range. It shifted around, and there was a methadone clinic across the street. And uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, meet me in the office. We'll go up lunch." And I meet him, and I walk into the office, and I burst out laughing. He's like, "What?" I'm like, "This is brilliant. You're like threadbare carpet, desk door. I think he had a." a like a rack, a clothing rack that was all blue shirts because that's what he wore. Um, and I was like, investors must love this. He's like, yep. You know, and, I, and he didn't say like, I'm, it's all fraud and it's a fake. It's nothing like – he didn't say anything like that. But it was clear there was a cultivated impression. You brought investors into that office and you said these people are not spending extra money. And I, I don't know the desk store said we're cheap, but it said – we're clever. We're not doing the thing that everyone else is doing and whatever. But here's the secret that we were talking about. I, and I did write this post about it years ago and it occasionally gets bursts of activity is it costs more to make a door into a desk by far than it did to buy a reasonable desk that had good ergonomic properties and that was more appropriately sized for an office and for someone's use. Yeah, door, doors aren't exactly cheap. I don't know if anyone's been in the market for a, a decent door recently, but... No, they're heavy. They were solid core because if they weren't solid core, you'd puncture through it. They're not, you know, the veneer ones are not meant to be weight bearing. Uh, and maybe they, some of them were veneer, but even those are not. Those are, I don't know, those were so flimsy. They bend in the middle. So my recollection is these were solid core. Uh, there was once, I don't know, we're setting up a new part of this uh, office space we had at Second in Columbia. And a guy comes out, you know, he's a, co- a contractor they hired. They're paying somebody an hourly wage. Uh, during a business boom in Seattle, and he's there cutting wood inside the office to to fit and making this desk. And he's there for hours, and there's all this mess. And he cleans it up, and he's got you know he's had to bring in two by fours or two by twos, 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. Four by fours. I keep saying two by twos. Four by four, you know, posts, which are really solid. And uh, I forget if you had to cut the door down. You can't use a, a you know, hollow core if you have to cut it down. And the things weighed a ton, and you couldn't get them through the doorway typically because they're a door with legs on it. So, um, and the ergonomics were horrible. You know, the people, uh, especially customer service, spent a lot of time, you know, kind of in one fixed position for hours working really intensely. And some of the programmers uh, constantly complaining about, you know, wrists and back, and people were. You know, trying to get sick leave for, for problems like that. So it, it's just not not that other desks are wonderful, but you could just go on out. I mean, Duckies, like I say, is this local office supply store that delivered. We could have been buying desks there for a fraction of them, had them delivered, set up, and and been an appropriate size, and could have been moved around if necessary too. Are there any other um, legends that stick in your craw when you hear them, um, just off the top of your head? Well, I think there's this persistent myth, which I think we talked about last time a little bit, that uh, Jeff had this full-blown vision for what Amazon has become. That's exactly – if you hadn't brought that up, that was going to be my next question. Well, and it's just totally false. And I'm not saying that Jeff told certainly not me everything or other people or anything. But you talk – like if you look at the best guide is go to Robert Spector's Get Big Fast, which came out in the early 2000s. And he talked to everybody who would uh, talk about Amazon, which was some ex-employees and nobody there because everyone was too cherry to talk because there was a lot of money at stake at that point. And uh, you can see that there was really very little discussion by anybody in any stretch of the imagination about much of what Amazon has become outside of media now. And uh, back then, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not – this is the thing. I'm not trying to say I wasn't Jeff Bezos' confidant. There were other people who were his confidant. There were his business advisors like Nick Hanauer and other folks. And, and he kept his own counsel and um, his wife is also brilliant. She was involved in the company in the early days and then – became a novelist, published novelist. And um, so she was, you know, involved in the early stages of setting up the company for, for at least a year, year and a half. And uh, so, um, so again, I'm, so I'm not trying to pretend that I have special knowledge. If I don't know something, that it means it didn't happen. But we talked, and Jeff, with me and with lots of other people at the company, we talked about what the future would bring and what it was about. And the only real clear direction was, you know, he, it wasn't going to be an everything store. It was going to be a uh, a store that sold a lot of stuff, and media seemed to be the lowest hanging fruit with the highest profit. And it was clear there'd be other stuff that would get encompassed in there, um, but there was barely like we hadn't even started. There was a program to allow publishers, smaller publishers, to stock books with us and then sell them on their behalf. And that didn't start while I was there, but it was in the works. And that became you know that's essentially become a fulfillment program that parallels stuff that UPS and other companies offer. I use that for my uh, the magazine book is I used f- uh, Fulfillment by Amazon. And Amazon, uh, what they call it, multi-channel sales. So these two divisions. And I shipped my books to an Amazon warehouse and then you can buy it from Amazon and I could also upload addresses of people who had backed the book in the Kickstarter and they just shipped them out on my behalf. So those, there were elements of that. But this thing of you know selling... Uh, clothing, for instance, or selling every kind of retail thing. I mean, you know, there was an idea they'd sell more and they got into tools, which was terrible because of the shipping cost and pet stuff, which was terrible because of the shipping cost and, and complexity. And, you know, they, they were clearly moving towards more retail categories. But all the different things they're doing today, there, there was no idea at the time that those would happen um, unless they were like a secret back of the mind, back of an envelope thing that Jeff kept to himself. Um, even things like Amazon Web Services, which is now apparently – a huge driver of, um, you know, it's a very fast-growing revenue category, and it's apparently profitable. They've been breaking out, <clears throat> excuse me, more information, and um, and people are looking to AWS 
where Amazon is renting computer capacity and storage capacity to other companies as potentially maybe it'll get become a subsidiary, another division, or maybe it'll be a real revenue or a real driver of uh, profit margin in the future, even with a huge competitive war going on. That was in nobody's mind at the time. Um, they had hired a guy just before I left who I had extensive conversations with about storage because we were storing book covers and we were, and my group was scanning book covers and we we're getting scans from Ingram and other companies. And I met with him because he was being hired to deal with kind of uh, the, uh, in, the infrastructure because our infrastructure was very uh, small and thin and good people, but it needed to grow massively. And we had conversations about this. And I will tell you, this was the guy who was implementing it. I talked to you know, Jeff about this as well at the time. There was no idea this would turn into a, a business that – it was a great development of a business. I'd say AWS is a brilliant idea and a lot of companies are in that space now uh, before and after Amazon. But that was certainly not part of what was thought about as well. I mean we can only speculate on this and I'm not asking you to validate <laughs> my own theory. <laughs> but I mean it, it just feels to me, especially after I did the research on, on eBay as well, that you know – I, I, I read all, all these books of, of Sam Walton and stuff, and I was looking for um, for parallels between Amazon and Walmart, and it felt to me like at some point, like you said, they wanted to be a big e-tailer, mostly for media. But then he sort of gets the idea that, well, but we can be a Walmart for the 21st century. And then I the reason I bring up eBay is because from all of the competition that people told me about when um, Amazon, I know you, you were gone by this point, but when Amazon tried to go head to head with eBay in um, in auctions, I think my theory would be that like that was sort of his everything store perfect model because eBay didn't have any warehouses, even you know so exactly, and so maybe maybe it le legitimately just is along the way he has been throwing stuff against the wall and. Some of the bigger stuff just always kept sticking and sticking, so he's throwing bigger and bigger things. You know what I mean? And and so maybe it is just the evolution of learning and, and learning what works. Right. I, I and I totally appreciate that. It's the it's the mythos. Uh, uh, this this comes up in another place too. Is people not only does Amazon spread the myth, but other people spread it who do not have any um, connection to mm -hmm. Amazon, which I find is fascinating. So. Um, I did not. I've, I never read the New Yorker article. It's uh, from uh, George Packer wrote this in February 2014. I'm pulling up while we're talking about Amazon, which got a lot of attention at the time because I started reading it, and it has something that I know is false at the very beginning. And Amazon responding to the article said it was false. And um, the uh, uh, I don't know how the New Yorker published this because it's an anecdote from someone remembering something that happened 19 years before that. Mm -hmm. But it ties into this. Is is uh, it says you know, I won't read this in full, but it says you know 1995 Bezos was <clears throat> excuse me uh, Bezos was manning an Amazon booth at Book Expo America in Chicago, and I started I joined the company the next year um, after a Book Expo that year, and people had come back, and it says there's a fellow and I, you know I won't say the guy's name, but he's in the article. Um, you know he saw a sign that said Earth's biggest bookstore. He quizzes Bezos why you know where is it cyberspace. We started a website. Who are your suppliers? Ingram and Baker and Taylor, which was true. Ours too. What's your database? Books and print. Ours, which is not accurate. Ours too. So what makes you Earth's biggest? We have the most affiliate links, a form of online advertising. What's your business model? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, so here's the thing. Um, Bezos said that Amazon intended to sell books as a way of gathering data on affluent, educated shoppers. The books will be priced close to cost in order to increase sales volume. After collecting data on millions of customers, Amazon could figure out how to sell everything else dirt cheap on the internet. And then in parens, Amazon says that its original business plan, quote, contemplated only books, unquote. 
Um, and you know, afterwards, this guy told his partner at the bookstore, I just met the world's biggest snake oil salesman. It's going to be really bad for books. I didn't read the rest of the article because that is incorrect. Hmm. Uh, almost everything about this is incorrect. Amazon was purchasing from Ingram Baker Taylor as well as this local bookstore. The database was not books in print. Uh, the, um, D- Jeff never talked about the most affiliate links. He never mentioned that at all. The program, I can't remember how old it was in 95, but it wasn't, I don't remember if the associates program had started, uh, started. I, I, I don't yet. think so actually. Don't quote me on that, but I don't think it had started yet. It was a big innovation, but I think it was the, I want to say it was the, the next year. The guy who started was a super nice guy. One of the nicest people at Amazon and blanking on his name. Uh, he'd come, I think from Microsoft and it was his idea. And it, of course turned into a massive thing, uh, from Amazon, but Jeff would never, ever has said, we were looking for margin that we weren't trying to price close to cost. All of our books were, uh, I think uh, when I got there, this is 95, right? And I think they were pricing, I don't remember what the discounts were. They weren't crazily huge originally. It wasn't until Barnes Noble got online and some other things happened that they started to do the really serious discounting in uh, maybe in 97. So, um, and we never talked about collecting data on customers or privacy issues. We didn't have the amount of data to store. Our Oracle database was getting over. This is, ni- this is articles quoting 95. In 96, in 97, one of the reasons I left is because our systems were unable to handle the amount of data coming in. And that got fixed after I left. And things, you know, went from there. Now it's a multi-billion dollar company. But pretty much the New Yorker ran a story in which one person uh, recounted an anecdote from 19 years before. And I just, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I, its original business plan was books. By the time I joined there, they're thinking about other media and hired somebody before I left to focus on DVDs and other categories of of goods, and it was clear it was going to you know go from there. But it's just I feel like this is a retconned story, and the fact that New Yorker included it meant I didn't want to vet the rest of the article for accuracy because I thought you know I don't know. And there's just and there's other people quoted it. I know I have issues with some other people quoted in it and their accuracy. And anyway, so I you know I just I walked away from it. And the same thing, the Everything Storebook, the excerpts I read from it. I palpably know the stuff that occurred during my time and within a few years after when I knew tons of people there, uh, a lot of them did not accord with what I know to be the truth. It's not like a speculation or secondhand. It's like I know, well, I should say either firsthand or secondhand, I know not. So these stories have been told now by reporters and publications, which is why they're uh, so pervasive as well. And I, I don't believe that, that Bezos himself has ever participated in any of these books. Actually, as an aside, when, right. the, when the 20th anniversary was coming around, I was working with Amazon PR. And for about a week, I think they might have been considering <laughs> letting me do a, <laughs> uh, just just The idea was just to keep it on the founding, keep it on the 20, yeah, yeah. 20 years. Um, and they ultimately declined. But I, if, you're, if you guys are still listening, there's always, <laughs> the door is always open if Jeff ever wants to do an a, a oral history. Well, the pisser is that it really is a great founding. Like he really came up with an idea at a time people weren't thinking about it. He challenged the fact that Barnes & Noble, which had, you know, was this giant destroyer. And then you had, you know, your borders, you had all these chains, you had multiple chains. And Barnes & Noble was the biggest, I believe, that had revolutionized accessibility to books. Like Barnes & Noble – and these superstores, the thing they did so well is they made it possible to buy tens of thousands, sometimes even, I think it was the biggest store, 75,000 unique titles in the store. That was fantastic. Now, the Riggio brothers are pieces of work. And, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble has fallen mightily from where it is. And they missed all the opportunities by not understanding what the Internet was about. We laughed when their site came online because of what they'd chosen to do. Uh, but that was an incredible idea. And you could say that Bezos's brilliance wasn't saying, look, we can have everything online. We are going to fake it. You know, and part of my job there was to fake it is that 
we had an inventory of, I think it was like 1.2 million books that we knew we could get from distributors within, uh, we could have them shipped to us within like one to three days, I think, something like that. I forget the full time frame, but we, so we listed 1.2 million in print. I did this program that I'm sure I told you about the last podcast, the out of print book program, which got us all these hard to find books, books that were used that we knew had been printed at some point and maybe we could source. And that took us to like two and a half million. And that was a bragging point, right? But the idea that everything that had ever been printed was in some degree of being available at a click, I think that's an incredibly powerful idea. And even the fact that because it was doing something so new, he didn't go out and just raise piles of venture capital. And Nick Hanauer went out and got 30 people to pony up $30,000 towards the first million Amazon raise. Also, an amazing, interesting story. I think it's much better than writing a business plan while you're driving cross-country. Like, mm-hmm. that's romantic. But I think the fact that you had to cobble together money for probably the most uh, disruptive and revolutionary idea that had occurred in book selling since Barnes & Noble – um, to me, that's much more interesting than the other stories. Well, and you know, this came up a lot with the recent New York Times article from a, a week or two ago. The fact that Amazon is almost alone among the first generation web companies that is still absolutely relevant and dominant. I mean, you know, Netscape is gone. Yahoo got eclipsed. The, the fact that 20 years on, Amazon is not only still around but still dominant in what it does and still absolutely relevant. One of the four horsemen or whatever they call it. You know? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, look at Yahoo is right. still there, but a shell of itself. Yeah. So, I mean, we, it's, it's, it's an amazing entrepreneurial story because yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely still has uh, moved with the times and, and still been dominant. And, and so that, <laughs> that does lead us into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which was, the recent New York Times uh, piece that got a lot of um, a lot of play all over the blogosphere and, and Twitter and whatnot. Um, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes, of course. But if you want to Google it right now while we're talking, it's called "Inside Amazon: Wrestling Big Ideas in a Bruising Workplace" by Jody Cantor mm-hmm. and David Straitfeld. Well, I think Jody and I, I think went to college together. I didn't know her very well, but I'm pretty sure she worked on the uh, Daily Paper when I worked on the Weekly Paper. So I want to I want to kind of approach this in a way that I, I don't I don't really have a strong feeling about this one way or another. I think you might possibly do. But I want to just, I want to approach it from the angle of, well, if you haven't read the article, it got a lot of, it was controversial because it basically paints a picture of the white collar sort of mid-level management and, you know, above and below work at, at Amazon. The work place is sort of, <laughs> Is sort of hellish is the way some people would describe it. <laughs> at, at the very least, very challenging and 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 very um, uh, hard hitting and and so first of all, let's let's do this. I know for a fact that um, from all from the recent Amazon interview people that I've I've gotten recently, that former Amazon people are still very they're a tight knit group, especially on Facebook <laughs> and other places. So yes. I was curious, did, were you privy to the reaction of former Amazonians to this article? I'm pretty much too far away from that now. Mm-hmm. So I saw like, I, uh, in the, you know, for years after I worked there, I stayed in touch with people. And then, you know, people moved, we lost touch. And they're working, I often had this joke that they were working at a time speed faster than mine. So we got further and further away in time because they were working so much more intensely. And I was kind of like, do, 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 in my, you know, my busy but little life doing my own thing and and it, it was like uh, they're in hyperspace and I, I can't see i can't hear you you're too far away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh so i don't i i 
know people who work for Amazon now, um, but I don't know them as I don't have uh, close friends who work for them. So I hear stories from you know sort of through people I know. I saw a little bit on Facebook from uh, you know somebody I know who works there now in a not in the Seattle office was really angry about the article because it was she thought it was a huge misrepresentation because it does not conform to her work experience at all. Right, uh, and I, I you <clears throat> might not be able to 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 judge this, but I, I my first curiosity is if you are an Amazon worker now, are you quietly being like, yeah, boy, that's that's kind of how tough it is? Or would most people that working at Amazon be like, yeah, that that was kind of a it was kind of a little of an exaggeration? Well, so uh, here's how I can break it down. It's like we know, you know, warehouse work. <clears throat> this is all about white collar work, really, and like you know, from uh, hourly or let's say office and business work. So it was people who have. It mostly talked about people who have the power to do something within the company. So it's not even like administrative assistance. It's people who had jobs where they're um, given authority to go do something and they need to go do it. And there's a little bit of holacracy in there. You know, that's that management theory that Zappos, which is a division of Amazon now, uh, and some other companies have been experimenting with. Uh, Medium does it also in which uh, authority is distributed. So it's not uh, like an anarchy, uh, there's a company uh, as a valve uh, is run as an anarchy of sorts, which is very interesting. I, I still want to learn more about that. Um, how you hire and fire in an anarchy? Valve, uh, Valve, the video game. Company? Yeah, 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 they're okay. an anarchy. They have this. They don't. No one is assigned work there, and uh, per se, uh, it's very interesting. I heard an econ- They have an economist, a consulting economist, and I heard him on a podcast a few years ago talk about how it runs, and I had my mind blown uh, because they produce stuff, but. Mm-hmm. It takes a very certain kind of person. And the same thing, holacracy requires certain kinds of people. And Zappos, and, and I'm not saying Amazon is, but it's a, this is getting to there, is uh, Zappos, there's just a big article about them because uh, Zappos said, we're shifting everything to holacracy, and if you don't like it, you can leave and we'll pay you a month or whatever, and a lot of people left. And it's a question whether you can have these very complicated management theory-style businesses in which ostensibly people who used to be very disempowered and at the bottom of a hierarchy in a traditional company – they get as much power to challenge and be involved and take charge of stuff. So people get put in charge of things, uh, but there's just not that classic top-down approach. And Amazon is very top-down. It still is. It always was. still is. Um, they just give people – I think one could argue the best case is they give people an enormous amount of rope with which to hang themselves and then they will hang those people. So <laughs> it's right. – some companies will give you a lot of room and they support and buffet you and they hope that you'll be able to take off and fly. Others are like, ah, oh, the plane crashed and let's move on because that, that's, that's gone. That plane has gone and we need another plane. Like, well, that was a person. It's like, nope, nope, that was a bad idea and they're fired or they're never going to get a promotion here again. Well, so we should say that, that those were the – it was the personal stories like that that, that got a lot of the attention where right. people would have had, a, had cancer and then, you know, the, the, the feeling was that – Stillborn child. Still, yeah, management Jeez. didn't care. You better hit your marks. Oh. You better hit your numbers. And we have zero – we have zero uh, – willingness to, to like you said cut anybody any slack so let's just personally what was your what was your reaction to reading stories like that well it rang true to me even though i didn't hadn't heard stories that extreme i knew that from you know people i know who left the company over the last decade uh you know so so amazon i think has gone through several phases and without going to too much depth you know they sort of the early startup phase in which it was you know balancing on the point of a pin and I thought was going to go actually out of business after I left in May 97. I thought it would be out of business within a few months because of uh, technological problems that were not overcomable and weren't all 
their fault. And I also thought the management was not in good shape. Jeff was great. A lot of people below him were not. And a lot of those people left. And a lot of the technology problems were solved by hiring a lot of people and, and uh, doing what seemed to be impossible and fixing things that were uh, not within their control. So there was sort of a, that phase and they went public and they were the stock market darling and the stock goes up and up and up. Then the dot-com crash comes. They still, because they'd raised so much money and they'd actually sold junk bonds, you know, senior discounted notes, uh, they had piles of money to ride through a time that was really difficult. And then they've sort of had this period in which they're still seen as a startup. And they've been growing in revenue constantly. They had uh, inconsistent profit and not a lot of profit for most of that time. And that's like the last 10 years. So, uh, so people left in that first from 95 to, say, 2002, 2003. People came and went. And some of it was them laying people off. Some of it was them outsourcing customer service or restructuring things. But let's say since about 2002, 2003, it's been sort of a different business. Like not that it's super stable, but it's a much more um, conventional, growing, stable business that – that is burning cash for growth as opposed to a startup that has no idea how it's going to get anywhere. Uh, and so I do know people who've left probably, I think in the last few years, everybody else, everybody I knew who was there for a long time or been in and out of it is gone. But I'd heard stories and none of them were as horrible as this. They were all stories like, um, I simply can't work less. If I don't work these you know, crazy hours, like if I'm not working essentially all my waking time except a few hours spent on weekdays with the family and a little bit of time on the weekend and the occasional vacation, I, you know, there's just no place for me there. There's that sort of story, which is a startup story, um, and they're not a startup. And you know, Microsoft went through the phase where its stock became moribund and they got po- and a lot of people got poached. And it had to become – Microsoft is not a hard-driving company the way it was, and that's okay because a lot of what they do is maintenance and it is keeping stuff working. Um, so you can have a 40-hour week pl- you know, plus a bit because it is tech that Microsoft – and I would argue a lot of people work a fairly normal work week there and their, the overlap into work-life balance is email outside of boundaries but not like going in the office every Sunday for a year, right? Okay, let me interrupt you though because yeah. I want to I touch on that point exactly because there was a real backlash to this article um, from – from Silicon Valley people, from from venture capitalists and, and, and whatnot saying that, well, but this is why Amazon is successful. You just used Microsoft as an example, <laughs> a counterexample. And so the, 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 the backlash people would say, well, exactly. At, at some point, Microsoft stopped being a startup company, and so it fell behind the game. And one of the reasons they would say that Amazon still 20 years on is dominant is because it has never stopped being a startup. What, what right, would you say right. to that? Well, I think it's I, – so I think there's multiple issues you have to untangle because I think uh, like Mark Andreessen and a bunch of other you know, key investors and other people in Silicon Valley did that. They're like, hey, eh, you can just leave and work for a company. It's not as hard driven. What's the big deal? It's like, well, so let me unpack that. So part of it – like, and they denied this. A lot of people denied that stuff this bad really happened that often. So – and that's fair. It's hard to know anecdotally how much horrible stuff is happening. You can get a sense from talking to a lot of people. And the New York Times reporters talked to 100 past and present Amazon employees. I know hundreds of people over 20 years and I know my own experience. I know why I left and why I left was I would never – I realized one day I would never be working less than I was working now. And I was already working at the limits of my physical abilities and then I discovered a few months later I had cancer. So, hey, uh, you know, it probably was right for me to leave from a bunch of reasons. Um, I may have had cancer even as I was working uh, there and not realized it. And they didn't fire me because I was sick or I wasn't keeping up. I was keeping up. I just woke up one day and said, every day my work is going to get more denser and I'm already working at much more than I want to. This is a silly thing to be doing. I think the company's going to fail. Um, 
which it seemed very likely, and several people left right around I did because they're like, we're not going to be here when this collapses around us and they can't pay their payroll. Um, but it was also uh, – I hit – I think I may have mentioned this. I was in charge of this out-of-print book program. Uh, and uh, I got it launched, but I couldn't get it all the way through because of both – you know, some of my, I think, personal and management problems about trying to get people to do stuff they didn't want to do. Um, I wasn't that aggressive and angry maybe <laughs> about it. And uh, so it got handed off to someone else who did a great job finishing it up. And he was actually a pretty kind guy who had better political abilities than I did. And I realized I'm never going to go anywhere in the company. I've reached the highest point I can get from now on. I'll have less responsibility and more to do. So I left. So I understand that sort of sense. That's what a startup is, right? You're like, you have to work really hard. If you screw up, you can get thrown out and whatever. Okay. So the so if I unpack the response to the article, one part is this is just what life is like in the dot-com world. And and I have to – and I'll take issue with that specifically to start with is Amazon is not a startup. They're hard driving. They burn a lot of money. But it's – there's a growing body of research that's very good that shows the more you work, you don't get more stuff done. You know, and there's a lot of people say there's somewhere in the 40 to 50 hour a week range for most people. And it's not like it's I don't think it's accidental that we've centered on a 40 hour week in America and a few hours less in some other countries as a sensible week. And, you know, in China, a 60 hour week, I think is the legal limit now. It's something like that. And there's a lot of violations of it. But like that's at the extreme. That's sort of at the extreme edge because for sanity and rest and brain and everything else, it's very likely for manual labor and brain related labor. People simply our bodies and brains simply can't do it. And so if you have people working 80 hours a week, it is probably a lot of wasted time that is probably being counted wrong. So there's an issue to me in general that do we need to be working these hours? Yes, in crunch projects when you actually are super productive over you know, sprints. Can you do this indefinitely? No, it breaks people. It is, it is a way to burn people up. And if you don't want to accept that, then uh, what you're doing is morally wrong <laughs> because there is, n- there is no way to work people on the schedules that are being demanded at startups all the time forever. And that seems to be in some divisions of Amazon, certainly not uniformly, absolutely not uniformly, but in some parts that aren't startup parts with new business lines, this is how things are all the time. People work really long hours all the time. They're expected to be available 24 hours a day. And I have heard these stories where people get called at all different times. Um, the, you know, the, the conference calls on Easter and Christmas or whatever that when the article or Thanksgiving, I think, were hilarious and inappropriate. It might have involved international calling, but that doesn't affect Easter. Anyway, um, but so that's one part. So you like sprints are okay. And I've done that myself where I've had months of intense work where I'm working every waking hour uh, except for time spent with my family. I have to take time out to spend with my family and eat and sleep. But otherwise, I am working solidly for my own gains. And if I'm working in a startup, I get that. But it is not a sustainable practice. Second thing is, in America, we're in a unique position that you can work people that way. It would be illegal in most other places. Most developed nations would not allow you to work people under the conditions that Amazon works people in America, whether in warehouses or in uh, white-collar jobs. Um, you could argue Amazon is incredibly inefficient, is that it's burning through people, so they're, and, and that's that retention rate thing that's come up that it's been hard to pin down a number. Are they growing so fast still that people have a short tenure there or are people leaving in droves? And that's why a lot of people there haven't worked more than a year mm-hmm. at the job. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's still, you know, Amazon doesn't want to release the numbers. Some internal people are leaking information that makes it suggest that they have a, that people have a very short time there and they fry and they're gone. Um, so if you were in, let's say, France or, you know, <clears throat> or the UK, which has, I think, a little bit looser labor related to, uh, you know, closer to America or even Canada, for Christ's sakes, you know, that's north of us, right? Um, you would not be in a job where you were working 80 hours a week, possibly at all. It might not even be considered feasible. 
if you were, you'd be compensated in some fashion. You would get the time off or money uh, for that, <clears throat> those extra hours. It would be financially infeasible for most companies to do that. So they would simply hire you know, 50% or 100% more people or they would become more efficient with what they're doing with labor. Amazon is absolutely, by any measure by which you look at how people are working there, <clears throat> they are on a track to destroy people, uh, their bodies and lives, if they're asking them to work that many hours and all the time and be constantly alert. And uh, they are incredibly inefficient because they're using those people's time badly. So that's like a big unpacking part of it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't even address – like so I accept – I think the hours are legitimate. I talk to people. You know, I run into people. You overhear people in coffee shops. Amazon and, a, and newer startups here. There are cloud startups all over the place in Seattle and other tech starters. People are working crazy hours. But, you know, I well, think – and there's – well, there are people. There are people at Amazon who clock in and out, or do eight thirty to four thirty, or nine to five, or whatever. There are people who do that, and I know people who do that. But I don't think that's the dominant mode there. What What is your response to the devil's advocate argument that well, because Amazon still maintains that culture, that's why they're still on top? Oh, I don't think that's that at all. I think, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's. Um, I think. Amazon is on top because they are so hungry and aggressive and sometimes in very bad ways and sometimes in good ways. Like the good ways are how they built AWS. Like Amazon Web Services, I don't know – I want to say I don't know anything negative to say about them in the sense that you – know, I'm sure that is like a startup division. One could argue people working in AWS are probably working crazy hours. There are probably a lot of people – uh, especially at higher levels, but even like in the middle tier who are like, we are building something incredible. No one has ever done this before. And I think it launched formally in 2006. So we're nine years into it. Should it be a startup? Well, part of what they're doing, they're in a really aggressive market and it might actually spin off into its own company at some point or whatever. So I would say there's, a, there's an argument that for some portion, not 50% or 90%, but maybe 5 to 15% of the people well, like me, on the top responsible people, or maybe you know five percent of all the people involved in AWS, because there's a lot of people wandering around hallways and pulling servers in and out, and just doing routine maintenance stuff. That's a regular job. They don't have uh, responsibility for development. They have responsibility for operations, and those are normal jobs, right? And then people above them have operational responsibility. People above them have strategic and planning and spending responsibility. So you could argue that is more of a culture in which that makes sense. And as I say, I don't have a, there's not a negative thing to say about it. It's a business they built. They didn't destroy other businesses to do it. They built their own software. They spent billions of dollars. Um, they have created, uh, they were a big part of creating a huge competitive market in which they are fighting just as hard as everyone else is for a piece of it. They don't, uh, they dominate parts of it, but they're not a, they can't be a bully. Uh, so I look at that and go, okay, well, there you go. Like that all makes sense, right? I look at the other parts of businesses they're in and I say there's no reason – the aggressiveness by which they enter a market has nothing to do with how hard they're working people or how they come up with ideas. They could they, – they say – I mean the part of the article that I think isn't disputed is that Amazon is a, is a very um, – like it's a contentious – a company in which ideas contend in like an incredibly like – I don't say vicious isn't right. The article might be more on the vicious side but um, – Ideas are fought out among people and, and people at lower levels and this is the holacracy idea which they don't do there but it's that idea is that <clears throat> a lower level person can come up with an idea or challenge something and really be heard. That's supposedly what happens there and there were examples in the article I think in which that was cited. The way it wastes time is that when problems have been solved and you have people at lower levels or newer people who don't know it, you waste time explaining them and going through them and solving them over and over and over again when it should be settled but sometimes one of those ideas turns out to be you know, a huge difference. 
I don't think you have to have a uh, a vicious company culture. And let's you know when you be, read some of the stories, you say this is vicious. People are unhappy with it. People cry at their desks. You know, some people say I've never seen anyone cry at my desk. That's fine. You didn't see it, but you know, someone else is citing examples of what they saw routinely in their division, which you may never have even walked into those offices or building. Um, do you have to be vicious? to have these ideas? I would say no, because there are plenty of companies in which the culture sounds well-run and calm and reasonable, and they're also coming up with innovative, amazing ideas for both selling products, selling, you know, or selling, creating products, manufacturing, uh, selling stuff, or, um, you know, creating services. So let's take Apple. People work crazy hours at Apple still, but a lot of people work normal hours. I, I'm glad, because Apple's such the obvious uh, parallel example where that's a company where the culture has been legendarily cutthroat and and hardworking and and uh, to a, a degree vicious like you say mm-hmm. it's been taught but i think that the, i want to say i know a lot of people past and present at apple i mean i know a lot of people joined recently in fact and uh i don't hear these kinds of stories privately from anybody like the stories you hear were about steve jobs being a you know big Dick, basically, <laughs> he's a, and, and but not to everybody, not all the time. I've heard wonderful stories about what he's done for people too, and you, some of those came out in uh, the more recent biography about him um, that was done with the family's cooperation. Uh, you know, he couldn't have been the person that he gets caricatured. He, he certainly had those traits, and those traits were often dominant. And he's really aggressive, but the culture he spread, from everything I can tell, is not as cutthroat and nasty internally. People work hard and they contend over ideas, but I don't. I think it's more – I think people work to fulfill what they think is the best thing they should do as opposed to fighting with other people to, you know, like a, an arena of, uh, of uh, lions and uh, centurions fighting or something. And I, I don't think I'm being naive because I've known enough people over decades who've worked at Apple and people who left years ago and they tell stories about what it was like and some of them were closer to the top and some of them were, you know, more like just, you know, programmers, people on the line who were doing stuff they were supposed to do in teams and – I'm the manager there is not in any means perfect. It's not like some kind of paradise, but I don't feel like I I've heard almost any story as horrible as the ones that routine, that were in that article. And then some other stuff I've heard routinely that's less horrible, but just about the driven pace and the lack of sort of a positive um, response. Um, what was the other thing I wanted to unpack? Yeah, the Silicon Valley response. I mean, the thing is, uh, not all companies are run like Amazon, but they're defending its culture as if it's an avatar of it because it's so big, not necessarily so good. Like most, like any company starting today, you really would not want a margin as bad as Amazon is settling for. And ultimately, their margins will increase if Amazon Web Services and some other higher margin lines of business, uh, you know, continue to grow. But um, you know, Facebook. I can't remember what its margins are. They're nuts. It, it's like all the all the new businesses that all the that Mark Andreessen and so forth are involved with. You know, software eat, is eating the world. Those are all super high margin businesses in which you can leverage relatively small numbers of people to make a big service, and then you build and scale and, and hire more. But you have this um, you know outsized return. So it's funny that they are all leapt to defend Amazon. Um, and, and it's also, these are all high level guys. So like, I never saw any of that. It's like, yeah, because no one's going to talk to you like that. No one's going to behave like that in a meeting. No one's going to come up to you and say, do you know this terrible thing that happened to me in a meeting? No one's going to say that to you. And then Jeff Bezos putting out the memo, uh, you know, it's not the Amazon I recognize. I believe that if any of this is anything like this is happening to you, email me, who's going to do that? Who is going to do that inside the company? Honestly. So to, to, to put a pin in this, because I, I do want to get to our third topic, um, <laughs> Absolutely. It, it it does the the article 
did ring true to you, though, at least in the sense that it described traits that even 20 years ago when you left, you started to see the seeds of and, and was one of the main reasons why you left. Precisely. I, and, and, but although I would say at that time, uh, I wouldn't have expected – I was disappointed in myself and how – you know, what was going on there and what I saw in my future. But um, I would also say I don't think what I saw 20 years ago was much different than you'd find in most startups. And it was certainly like – you know, the stories were – you know, Jeff never yelled at me when I screwed up. He would give me an incredibly good um, – explanation of what went wrong and what I should do. And I learned a lot from it. He was really nurturing, like direct boss when that came up. Um, I got off one phone call with him after I'd done something, I'd supply data to some group that I didn't realize that we worked with. And he, I didn't realize the implication of it because they used that against us in a business uh, dealing. And I had no idea. Uh, it was foolish of me. I should have, I realized later uh, exactly what happened, but I was being lied to by this other company and I was being too naive. And he called me up probably from the, the air because he was flying. It was probably on an expensive, you know, air phone call in 1997. And he explained to me exactly what had happened was wrong and what I shouldn't do in the future. And I was like, oh, I totally understand. I get off the phone. I'm like, oh my God, I think I was just reamed out and I feel good about it. Like, wow, that's amazing. What an amazing <laughs> boss. So yeah. that's, you know, what I think the problem is, I think his approach to things is a brilliant guy. And I think his approach to things, I think as it, as it percolated down, there were some really nasty people when I worked there and I would never want to work with them again. I don't ever want to see some of them again because I think they were, I, I think they were slightly inhuman um, in the way they acted. And, you know, some of that's that engineer culture and some of it's the people who don't have empathy, do well in business thing. And I know they hired after I left, I kept hearing stories within a few years of all these MBA types who really had no interest or understanding of the business and they wasted a lot of money and Amazon had to shut down a lot of stuff would happen in those years and kind of go back to its its core. So uh, I, the thing I would say about the article that is clearly, I would say, uh, unfair in a certain way, like I don't think it's inaccurate, but I do think there was a lot more, there's a lot more positive and a lot more calm that goes on there. And I don't think the article was able to carve out and say, you know, this only represents part of the company. And, you know, the fact, like the warehouse is a huge number of Amazon's employees, and that's its whole other thing. And that's how expose is written about it. And, you know, there's a lot of people at Amazon who do just work a normal week, and they don't work this kind of thing. I think, um, I think the stories are so extreme, and, you know, in, in many cases, in some cases, confirmed by the company, uh, you know, or the, the one person, there's that great story, one person tells a story, about how she hit a glass ceiling and Amazon contacts her boss who's no longer at Amazon and says, yeah, that's what happened. And I'm like, oh my God, okay. That's what he said and he's agreeing. He's not at the company anymore but he actually went or she went on the record to say that. Um, but I think, there's, I think there is some percentage of the company that is just tootling along and doing its job and isn't experiencing any of this. I think this happens at higher levels in the company in which people are, are contending for leadership positions and ideas and it just sounds to me more intense and nasty and more, more work than it needs to be to get the same results. Um, I have, I want to, I want to quote something in German to you though. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Cause the thing that came down to me at the end is like, what is Amazon doing? They're selling stuff. They're not curing cancer. And there's a story by Heinrich Burl called, uh, es wird es which means, uh, something, uh, something must happen. It's uh, and it's this very funny, it's a really funny story I read in a German class years ago. Mm -hmm. And I always remember, and there's this thing with this guy who's pretty lackadaisical. It's like, ah, I needed to get a job. So I went to took this bus to this interview thing and I realized they were watching us through one-way mirrors. And I, so I did this whole, you know, I did the whole shtick to make myself look excited and was all like, what's your biggest problem? I work myself to death. And, you know, he did the whole thing, right? And, it's very, and this is very modern for being written decades ago. 
And the boss goes running through the factory and he says, you know, uh, um, he's like, runs around and says, uh, um, this phrase, es wird es was geschehen. And people say, es muss es was geschehen. You know, something must happen or something <laughs> mm-hmm. will happen. Mm-hmm. And people say, something must happen. And it's like this watchword. And they run around and finally someone fractionally pauses in replying to him and the boss drops dead. <laughs> and it's this hilarious story. And I'm sure it's been translated. You know, mm-hmm. something must mm-hmm. happen. Um, but the end of the story is the guy says, oh, uh, what do we make? We made soap. Mm. <laughs> it hasn't mm-hmm. mentioned the whole story why they're so excited and running around and hud but it's like oh yeah by the way we were soap factory mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's this is all about soap and i feel like the amazon story it's like oh my god these people's lives being ruined and working so hard and breaking their health and being miserable and having practically or legitimately post-traumatic stress disorder they're just shipping stuff for crying out loud mm-hmm. all right i've had my say about that part <laughs> well no i i i, I appreciate it <laughs> Um, at, at, but at, at the risk of, of doing a, a hard, hard right turn here, Absolutely. the third thing that I, and you know what, I'm going to let, I'm going to wind you up and let you go again, because I don't, <laughs> I don't actually have a specific question here. This is more you helping me analyze things to help me do better research and things yeah. like that. But as I said to you, um, as I've been exploring how newspapers, how magazines, how all sorts of publishers dealt with the arrival of the web and, and. Um, evolved to it, meet its challenges and whatnot. I've almost everyone I've spoken to has been from the you know from the top from from the the executive suite side of the story. And so I wanted to see if you could help me get a sense of what it was like to be a a freelance writer, a journalist, a, whatever over the last twenty years as the the web has revolutionized uh, publishing and it has gone electronic. Um, I believe you've you've been a working uh, journalist or, or writer for about twenty years, about that exact period of time. Yeah, I think I left Amazon in uh, well, no, like I'd say eight. Oh, that's a good question. I I've been writing since ninety four and being paid for it, like in print mm-hmm. uh, since then. And I had kind of my full time web uh, development job. Then I was at Amazon, and so uh, since like uh, May of ninety seven, I've supported myself as a freelancer with some amount of that time being uh you know a good hunk of it being writing and then now like a lot of it being writing. and and we should say that you have you've worked for exclusively electronic side of it you've worked for what people call the legacy <laughs> dead tree side of it uh, so you worked for magazines and you've worked for websites and and continue to do so uh, uh both um so okay, let let me just reframe the question as I gave. It I've to written you. for hypercard stacks, for right? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> let me reframe the question that I gave to you before we started recording, and then we'll let this take us wherever it goes. So what I want to try to understand is, and I might be wrong about this, but I get the sense that especially when blogging came around, that with the Gawker model of of getting young kids, paying them thirty thousand dollars a year. And, um, you know, 30 posts a day or whatever. And, you know, obviously some people, uh, good friends of mine, have, have taken that track and have ridden it to greater success, greater financial success, all sorts of things. I want to know, is, is the sense that being a, a writer in, in the digital realm was always valued less, always paid less than legacy? And my theories would be that maybe at the beginning because let's say you're working at Pathfinder so you're you're in in the Time Warner empire but you're an experimental part of the empire so they they're not valuing it like they would value you writing for a cover story for Time magazine and then the the did that just continue was it a continual 
thing down the years that the digital side of the work has always been less valued. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but go. This is a fantastic <laughs> question because I think the issue, so I'll even go back further. So all of my friends and colleagues and things I've read about the early 1970s, about like what freelance writers were paid. So staff writers, like uh, new, newspapers were unionized almost entirely. Uh, magazines, I don't know if they were unionized, but people were paid awfully well. Freelancers got what I think is the equivalent of $5 a word today for ma major magazines. You could sell, you know, I was just reading a book about uh, New Yorker cartoonists, some of whom, you know, have been doing cartoons for 50 or 60 years. And uh, in the old days, in the, the like 40s to 60s, I think, they would just walk down the street and each day of the week was a different day to meet with editors or there were some days you met with a bunch of them. You showed them all the stuff you'd sketched up and they bought some and sometimes they wrote the caption for them. And uh, it was a glorious time. And people would get something like, you know, what was the equivalent of like $1,000 for one cartoon uh, in, in those days because there was so much ad money and so much subscription money. And, you know, even in the 70s, it was still a massive market and there was – people were reading like crazy and buying and there was money. And so in relative terms, it was really easy to uh, – I want to say easy to make a living relative to uh, the amount of work you had to do. And so you could put in a lot more work and you'd have people who were freelancers writing in magazines and traveling and putting months into something and then getting these huge fees and it all sort of working out economically. And so somewhere between the 70s and 90s, that equation changed and freelancers became devalued because by the time I started writing – for print for the New York Times, which uh, had a digital section, but it was really, it was, you know, essentially for print. The length was for print, the style was for print, and it also ran online uh, for what was called the circuit section in, oh gosh, that was 1998, I think. And um, they, uh, they're paying 50 cents a word, um, which today is probably the equivalent of, um, if I do the math, it's probably about 25 or 30 cents a word today. And that's terrible. And that was mm. for print. Um, and staffers at the time were probably getting the equivalent of three or four times that in salary for the same sort of output. I mean, it depends by reporter how much they did and what was expected and whether they were doing investigative stuff. But there was a big gap between being on staff and being a freelancer. Um, and, uh, and I think they had set a lower rate some years before and then inflation just was pretended not to exist. Um, so I know they pay more now, but I haven't written for them for a decade. Partly some of my editors left and shifted around. Partly I was like, I can't work for this little uh, for what they expect. And um, what I think you're – I think there was – the thing that happened is that though in the digital division, digital-only publications to be sure or, or like Pathfinder as you mentioned, the early time, uh, time project, Time Warner project, uh, that um, those hired young people typically. So you'd have – Maybe still young people or older people in management positions getting paid, you know, salaries like everyone gets paid in management. But the people involved in producing stuff were undervalued and were paid, you know, coming out of college or in their 20s and were paid crummy uh, media wages. And a lot of media wages were really terrible. You know, the whole newspaper thing was in the old days, like meaning 20 years ago, is you would get paid like $18,000 a year if you were lucky working in Podunk, you know, Illinois at a paper and you'd be doing sports reporting and local reporting and all kinds of stuff and you would work your way up. And eventually, if you're lucky, you get a job at a bigger, bigger daily in a metropolitan area where you want to be and start making, you know, 40, 50, 60. Then up in the New York Times, I want to say, was paying as much as $90,000 a year to reporters. And the, sure the, that's the old correct. model was, was really sort of the, the, the oldest school apprentice, apprenticeship yep. style. Yeah. And you got, paid you got paid really awful as a starting reporter in a small market, but you could make a good wage. And because they were unionized jobs in most cases, by the time you would reach, you know, you could be in the field for five years and be making a good wage. In 10 years, 
you could have you know something that was equivalent of a protected job for a life that paid a good wage. You had to work hard because reporting has always been hard and it always involved you know not a startup job but still whatever. So I think that on the digital side, I think the work was valued less, and partly because there was often no model behind it. There was either no extra money coming in or very little, as with the New York Times, had very little online advertising. So in the late 90s, um, and I think that got perpetuated forward. So even as business models advanced, uh, the wages paid uh, did not. Um, and so, at, you know, there's times like I, I would, I've said openly, like from 98 to 2005, I don't know, I filed 100 stories for the New York Times. And I subsidized that with other work. I was doing conference planning. I was doing programming. I was writing for some publications that paid uh, – more per hour, let's say, even if the word rate didn't match up, I was writing for you know, doing digital stuff where the actual uh, resulting time, uh, you know, the, the hourly rate was very good. And um, I liked writing for the New York Times. I liked being able to do the stuff they let me do. So I worked for a bad wage until such a point where I'm like, I've done enough. This is enough. It's getting too hard to pitch and get people to respond. <clears throat> and, you know, they're not talking about raising wages, so I'm out, you know. And then I, at that point, when I started writing for The Economist, which paid a lot better. And uh, and I've continued to do so to uh, to the present day. Is there, is it also maybe part and parcel with you know everyone complains that um, all news, all information has sort of been commoditized by the web. Is is that a part of it as well, um, driving down or, or keeping keeping the pay that that digital writing uh, can generate? Well, I think it's – I want to say that the, the supply of writers got much bigger when newspaper – or when okay, so traditional publications often kept their standards very high for online writing. And for instance, like The Economist, uh, they wound up developing dozens of blogs. I wrote for one of them called Babbage. I wrote more or less two columns a week for four years. And every one of those was, as they say in Britain, subbed by a sub-editor subbed them, edited them before they went up. And sometimes we had to go back and forth. We edited it like, you know, hammer and tongs. Like it was going in print. Other times I'd write something, be a few minor changes, they'd be happy with it and would go up depending on the topic. And some of them reported, some were sort of essays. Uh, and so some publications, main, and that's why The Economist now has many fewer blogs. They decided to focus uh, more effort into less online that was more refined. And it's just, it's a, it's a sensible thing based on traffic and where people are going and where their efforts are. So that makes sense. But um, but a lot of publications uh, kept that attitude, but because they didn't have a budget associated with it, they would pay a lot less. Um, so I'm not sure they valued the content less. But then I think the thing that really happened is that when you had publications that were native, digital native, and started up and had um, – uh, you know, and this is really, let's say, up to 2001. So I should point out, so in 2001, I was getting like $2.50 a word for writing for Business 2.0 which was awesome, and I'd love to see that again someday. And that's because Business 2.0, <clears throat> Industry Standard, and other, uh, Fortune, other publications were running as much as they could because they had so much ad revenue coming in from all of the companies that had gotten IPO money and investment before it collapsed. There's a second class. Did I talk about this last time, the second class mailing privileges thing? No, but I, I do want to interject when I go, oh, to, yeah. when I go to the library uh, and, and, and get out the, the old issues of – industry standard by 1999 they're 500 pages yeah and they I mean, were they bi-weekly at that point or fortnightly rather or they you uh, know uh, no i think it was bi-weekly still monthly I, it was bi-weekly they might have gone to weekly by the tail end of 99 but i'm i'm telling you the, these are five six hundred page magazines yeah, business 2.0 went to fortnightly by 2000 2001 because so the rule is um now it's called i forget it's not second class mailing it's called like periodical mail or something and the rule is there's a percentage and i think it's i forget if it's 75 percent or 
66%. I think it's 75% is the limit of advertising to editorial content. And the post office defines what they mean by editorial content. So if you want to get cheap mailing pr- prices that's affordable, below first class, you have to meet um, this rule. So they're getting so much advertising. They were had such a huge shortage of writing. The rates went up and up and up and up. And so I got put in a contract where even if they couldn't run me, they were paying me. They put me on retainer and I would just write like crazy and – they would, uh, and I got like two fifty a word, and uh, you know, subtracted from the retainer, and they'd pay me more if I exceeded that. Um, and then the bottom fell out, and all these magazines went out of business, or became really thin, or transformed into something slightly different. And and that was the last time that good rates were available. And I think what happened from that point forward is when that collapse occurred, um, you know, it was still a print thing. Like I was getting two fifty a word for print. None of this was online. If I did something that was online only, it was still being paid, you know, really badly. It might have been 16 cents a word or 30 or 50. And I would do some of that, especially if it was stuff I liked and I could turn it around fast. And I've always looked at the, you know, hourly wage as opposed to the per word wage to, um, to make it work. Um, but what I think after that is as things went to born digital, those were all started on shoestrings. And a lot of them were really tiny. People weren't, you know, founding the Huffington Post until later. They were starting up things like Gizmodo, um, which was, you know, Pete Rojas mm-hmm. just working all the time, just writing, writing, writing 100 hours a day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. everyone they brought on was writing crazy amounts. They were getting paid crap and they got bonuses based on page views and things like that. And I think that just became a model where it was like, yeah, we're going to pay you terribly and you're going to write a lot and you're going to learn. And then maybe, you know, at some point we'll figure out how to pay you more. And these are for staff jobs and the freelance Money was typically awful, and I, uh, I think in that period of time, the middle two thousands, I was trying to make, I was writing for the Seattle Times, which paid again. The hourly was good. The the word rate was terrible. The hourly was good. Um, you know, I was, I was doing I was doing conferences. I was doing um, I don't know a bunch of different stuff to make a living programming, and uh, um, try to write for business publications, things like Infoworld, which was still in print and paid uh, very well because they were in print. And uh, then it went, you know, then it essentially went online only and sort of disappeared at some point too. And um, so I think digital writing was valued digital only. Sort of born digital publications were tiny and cheap and did not have a lot of money coming in. And they worked their staffers to death and they paid freelancers badly. And then I think that set the pattern even when new publications started up that came from a print background or they were print publications that started to do a lot more online. Uh, and um, you know, developed an online schedule or amount of content that didn't match. They're like, well, we really can't afford. We don't have the revenue. We don't have, yeah. So we're going to pay really badly. And um, so that was tough. Um, the interesting thing for me, though, is starting in 2008, when the worldwide economy went bad, my uh, my personal experience was everything got better. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, I had the suspicion that publications had to lay off so many people. They had so much smaller staffs, staffs, they had to actually offer more because they just didn't have the people to do what they needed to do to, to pay the bill or to, to get the revenue. And so rates started to get better. And then in about 2013, I feel like there was another big uptick. Again, I don't know why, because a lot of the publications I wrote for in uh, 2013 and into 2014 uh, raised the rates dramatically. In some cases, you know, three to five times the rate for online writing because I think something ticked over. I think they started to have better online models that and, and thus bigger budgets. And I think they also had trouble attracting the kind of writers they needed because people just went and did other stuff. They went into PR, they were running their own sites, they were doing you know, other projects that paid well, they're doing you know, uh, professional writing as opposed to necessarily reporting. 
uh, you know, white papers and things like that. And um, I know a lot of people who do a lot of writing that, uh, you know, they're journalists. They do a lot of writing that is not for, um, you know, journalistic publications. And it's not a conflict of interest or they're careful about who they write for or they're writing for, you know, academic groups or um, nonprofits, things like that. Uh, and I think that has helped drive the wage up finally. Um, I was just, before we were recording, I was mentioning The Economist just came out. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is, uh, should I say the date? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right, it's August 28th, so in the August 27th issue. I don't know if we have an artificial day this is recorded on. On the August 27th issue, they have a, a piece called uh, A Brand New Game, and it's really nice because it collects the latest um, uh, figures for ad sales and uh, projections. That's 2017. <clears throat> and this matches what I've seen before is that, uh, is that newspaper advertising in newspapers and magazines – actually, I should say the magazine – Part of it is shrinking, but not as much as the newspaper part did. And it, it's projected to shrink further, but that's advertising in print newspapers. It's not online advertising for newspapers that also have a print edition. So uh, globally, uh, since 2009, there's been an increase of like every year, it's like 20 or $30 billion more globally, not adjusted for inflation, but that you know, inflation is very low during this period of time. So it's a real increase. And so uh, you know, this year, the, it's about 500-something billion dollars worldwide for television, newspaper, magazine, radio, outdoor, like billboard, cinema, which is a measurable slice apparently, and internet. And internet is, of course, the, the only part that's really growing at any real pace. T TV is growing a bit, um, but probably not much more than inflation. Internet is growing by... You know, leaps and bounds. It'll be uh, it's like 150 billion dollars today, and it's going to be like 180 billion dollars in two years. So um, it, that's where the money's going. And a lot of it's going to paid search, and not so much of it's going elsewhere. So the money is still out there, and it's growing, but it's not getting filtered into necessarily publications that then in turn pay uh, freelancers or staffers. Well, okay, this this will lead into um, a, a different question. Uh, I, I actually have said this in a previous episode when I uh, spoke with Steve Yelvington, um, who was a, a pioneer of uh, newspapers going on the web. And, and I had said that I, I, I think I quoted that it was Ezra Klein that said that this is the best time in history to be a writer because there's now this explosion of outlets. Now, subsequently, I've not been able to find. <laughs> so it might not have been Ezra Klein, but I feel like it was one of this new generation of bloggers that turned into media personalities that have you know created now their own publications and things like that so like you said over email this question like is journalism as a profession better off or worse off than 20 years ago 10 years ago um is is it a thing where there's been a thousand flowers that have bloomed and you can get everywhere on the spectrum from long reads and and um you know the all to buzzfeed and and what have you so that if you're if you're a young kid coming out of journalism school today, are you would you be <laughs> would you be optimistic for that kid or pessimistic? Well, that's a great that's also a very very thoughtful question because I think I want to say it really varies by country, and I don't know enough to comment in depth about anything but uh, the U.S. But there's uh, there are other countries in which uh, even with some economic dips, they never saw like newspapers are still very popular. In uh, was it Denmark? I think has a huge newspaper circulation. In countries in which people are have which literacy rates are lower, there's actually more newspapers read. And people, places where people have less online access or it's expensive and through a cell phone, there's newspapers being read. Newspapers are super cheap and they also push an enormous amount of advertising because they reach huge audiences. So the U.S. is not uh, unique in the media landscape that's changed, but it is. It is not um, – what's happened here is not what's happened elsewhere uh, uniformly. 
So that's one reason why I think when you look at these global numbers for advertising, they mask a little bit of some of the effects happening in America. So I would say in America specifically, I would argue that um, journalism is probably at a better place now than it has been for 20 or 30 years. And, but it's not about money is the problem. Like if you want to look about like are, uh, you know, are people – are more people employed at livable – or good wages, you know, livable is a tricky measure, but like, it's just, uh, it's a hard, so here's a st- statistic, I looked this up before we talked, which was uh, in 2001, the American Society of Newspaper Editors uh, said that newsroom employment was, uh, this is the peak, I think, in history, was 56,393, and so that's all newsroom employees, not the business side, other folks uh, in uh, newspapers in America. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't include magazines, which is always a smaller number, and doesn't include, you know, TV and whatever. 2015, so that's 56,000 people roughly. 2015, they found 33,000 people, right? So that's a drop of uh, 13 or 23,000 jobs. That's a huge drop. But the question is, and these, these are full-time jobs. So the question is, uh, uh, and a population over, um, what is this, like 15 years, population has grown by tens of billions. So conceivably, as a percentage of overall employment, that's even a worse drop. Maybe it's a 50% drop, right, or more. Um, but the uh, the thing I wonder is um, I have this theory that the, the, that all of the things being equal, if newspapers hadn't had such a precipitous drop, like let's say they'd gotten a, a better uh, grasp online and they were able to shift ad revenue better and it wasn't this horrible thing but it was more of a shift and it was flatter rather than whatever, I actually think newspapers would have in the process um, – either shifted a lot of employees or cut them because I think the internet makes news more efficient. And so dissemination is more efficient. Um, you know, so it's not talking about the press men or the press women and the, the distribution and circulation. Like that's its own thing that would have changed. But I think, I think reporting is easier now than it used to be because you can communicate with people globally by voice and video. You have access to so much more now than 15 years ago that's been scanned. Um, I do stories now where I can find almost every kind of primary document I need online. And occasionally I can't, but it's actually becoming rarer and rarer. And I don't have to pay for most of those too. And, uh, you know, so I can, ha- I can interview 20 people. I can record the calls. If I need to have them transcribed, I can send them to an online service that charges a really small fee per hour to turn them into a transcription. I mean, so all of these things that used to be huge overhead for reporters, um, I think is naturally maybe more people efficient. I can write bigger stories more, more rapidly and more accurately or more completely um, than I could have before because I simply couldn't have afforded the time uh, and they couldn't have paid me to do it. So I had to have a smaller scope or or just, I don't know, wouldn't have had as complete a picture of things. So I don't know. Are more people like – is more money being paid to people engaged in journalism today than 15 years ago? I don't know that. I don't know. <clears throat> um, it probably is and it probably is a lot more but it involves so many more people. It's the long tail thing. So there are still people getting paid – I think it's much more unlikely you get paid zero to write something online now that's running in a publication with advertising. So a friend of mine wrote something for a major venture capital-backed publication. I don't want to name it because I don't know what the rates are publicly. And they offered her 200 bucks to write something. She'd, never, she'd written some online for other publications for very little uh, that were startups and, and you know, labors of love. And um, she got connected with somebody and uh, pitched. And um, I was like, you know, 200 bucks is not bad. Like, it's not good. But she's practically a first-time writer. She's mm-hmm. got a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she wrote something really good for them that, was, that fit the bill. And they gave her editorial support and helped her and edited it and worked with her. And I was like, you know, that's not terrible. If, it's, if that's what people are paying today, if it's between 50 to 200 bucks to write 
something like that for a new writer to get new voices in and then they pay more for people with experience, then that is not horrible. And you can't make a living off that. But it's also not an offensive wage relative to what's being offered. So, um, and I know, you know, publications I write for, they used to pay maybe it's like 150 or $200 for something and I might do some of that for them sometimes. If I had something I could write in a couple hours and I felt good about it, some of them are now paying 500 to $700 for the same thing. And like, all right, well, that is becoming a livable wage. Like I can write that and do a thorough job to my standards, to their standards, and, uh, and then actually make a living if I do that full time. All right, one one more question. Do you think standards are rising? Like you, you just were speaking about that, getting away from the you know everyone uh, was down on HuffPo and BuzzFeed for these aggregators and all this stuff. Do you feel that online the standards for digital writing are are improving? I think so. That's my feeling is that um, as publications pay more, they demand more, and I think they're paying more because they want better. And this is not to knock people who were getting paid less because I was getting paid less myself. But I think I believe there is a finite – I believe there are a finite number of people who can write to specification for publications. And it's not you know 10 million and it's not maybe a million. There's somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of range you know, that could write in a journalistic style and have the experience or can learn well enough to do it. And then there's a larger group that's in the millions that I think could write for a wider variety of publications, especially about things that are more opinion-based or, you know, like uh, fashion. And not that you don't have to be knowledgeable about fashion, but without reporting. You could have an incredible – you could have a uh, an incredible internal catalog of like the last 50 years of fashion in America without ever having done any reporting. And you could write something about a new fall line from some organization or from, you know, uh, uh, house. And uh, that's not necessarily reporting. Uh, and it's not to knock that kind of writing, but that a larger group of people who are very knowledgeable can write. So uh, here's a great example. This guy, Dr. Drang, I don't know his real name. He's, he's a consulting engineer. He has a very popular blog uh, that a lot of Mac people consult, even though it's rarely about Mac stuff in specific. And he writes, he's, writes incredibly cogently, superb style about often some fairly uh, not arcane. It's like it's stuff in his field, but things about force and motion and, and measure and stress and materials. And it's really interesting. And it's on his blog. Now, is that guy a journalist? No, he's not a journalist. You know, is he writing in a style that the Economist would publish? No, it's too technical. But the quality of what he's writing is very good. And, and um, I would say there's a lot of people like that who have learned through internal editing or working with other people to write, or just have a natural knack to um, write in an expressive and clear way that reaches the, an audience correctly, whether it's thousands or, or millions. And um, they really don't do any reporting uh, but what they're writing is better and better, and they're and people find them because the writing is good. I think on the reporting side, I think people writing more classical journalism, maybe that hundreds of thousands of people in America, part doing something like that, and maybe it's larger. I want to say at least hundreds of thousands, but some people fit in that category. Some people are writing one thing a month or a year, and other people are writing you know five articles a day. Uh, I think that's gotten better because the supply must be constrained because you don't pay more if you have a ready supply. So I've assumed that. I am more in demand as an experienced writer, but also my friend who is a first-time writer being offered $200, uh, and I've heard other similar stories of things like $125 or $75 for a blog post that's, you know, a few hundred words. That's a very high return if you're, if you're good at pushing stuff out efficiently. Uh, that, to me, says there's a constrained supply of writers who meet the bill for publications who are demanding more. 
Sounds cautiously optimistic, but, well, it but is certainly optimistic. optimistic. Well, and I'll tell you this one thing, which is that I feel like I'm being compensated better now than I have been in years, but I also feel like I'm undercompensated by nearly everybody I write for. And I don't mean like they're trying to chill, steal from me, but more like just figuring in inflation, my costs, healthcare, because I'm freelance, I have a family I'm supporting, um, all those things. Like I really should be being paid somewhere between 25% and 100% more by almost everybody I write for. And, uh, and it's not like I can't make a living. It's more like I am, I know I'm being underpaid relative to people with similar staff jobs and relative to what I was paid um, post, post uh, you know, economic collapse even or even pre, pre-run-up in the 90s and post-collapse when things sort of settled back to normal. Uh, it hasn't kept pace with inflation and other costs. And so it's a very hard thing to you know, get up in the morning and write for less. So rates going up was good. Some of the rates that went up are like – I'm like, that's great. I don't need to get paid more than that. Like it would be great if I was. But when you're paying you know, publication X, uh, that's totally reasonable. That meets my bar. But a lot of them are still, even with increases, are, are lagging. And what I'm hoping is I'm going to start, quite honestly, using some leverage because I have things I can turn down now and maybe not write for some publications or not write certain kinds of pieces because they can't meet my rate. And I think that will be an interesting thing to try. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, let me end with an aside uh, to you and and to the audience because I've actually kind of accidentally discovered that when I recommend books, uh, (laughs) especially tangentially related history books, uh, the audience tends to really, really love that. So it's funny. I've been thinking about this media thing recently because have you ever read the book uh, by David Halberstam called The Powers That Be? Oh, no, no. I've heard of that book like my whole life, I think. Well, so this is my recommendation. If you want to get a really good overview of how the 20th century big media uh, infrastructure was built and, and he covers how the, the newspaper dynasties, he, he covers, you know, like Henry Luce and, and, and Time getting uh, getting started. He covers uh, oh, wow. CBS, so radio and television getting started. And it's only up through about the mid-70s, so it doesn't quite take it to the to the um to the modern era but i highly recommend if anybody's curious about the history of media in in the 20th century the good old days that glenn and i were talking about <laughs> at the beginning of this conversation when you could when your expense accounts were were basically bottomless <laughs> i recommend uh the powers that be by david halberstam i'll put that in the show notes also i'd also recommend it's a book it's uh it's not a recent book but it's um uh i'm trying to when it came out now i'm trying to look this up as we're talking but it's by ken doctor who i think i spoke mm. about Last time, maybe it's called Newsonomics. Mm. And uh, the book came out in 2010, I think. That's what I'm seeing here. Yeah, it came out in 2010. 12 new trends that will shape uh, the future of news or the news business. And um, he, he was at, uh, I think I did tell this story that he, uh, he ran a small weekly paper in Eugene, Oregon, where I grew up. And my dad worked for him in the 80s. And then um, the paper went under during an economic time of trouble. He did not want to be, uh, he did not want to have, um, he didn't want, to ch- didn't want to make it free ad supported. He wanted to charge for it, mm. and uh, and that was his. And it had ads, but it, he also wanted to have a subscription fee. He thought that was worthwhile. And they did great journalism. A lot of interesting people came out of it. Uh, but then he surfaces again at uh, Knight Ritter, and he works for there for for quite a while. And he was influential in some of the directions they took in digital news. And then he just he after he left Knight Ritter, he just writes really smart things. He's a consultant in the industry. He really gets it. He's gotten it for since '95, like when stuff started to happen that. Um, he was on top of it. So the book is good. And uh, Neiman uh, Journalism Lab, he writes there regularly about newsonomics. And because he was inside the industry, he kind of knows everything 
worked, and he's been pretty accurate about his predictions about the directions. I mean, not specifics, but like how things are shifting. So uh, another good book and person to follow. Ken well, Doctor. While, while we're on the subject of recommending books, um, <laughs> why don't you tell us about uh, the, the magazine book that, that um, I believe just was successfully published or, or the, the, the fundraising was, was just finished, right? Well, you're very kind. Yeah, I, I did the fundraising. So this, the magazine existed from October 2012 to December 2014. It's 58 issues, almost 300 articles, all that were commissioned for it. Um, uh, I was the editor and then bought it from the founder a few months into it. And um, so there's th- almost 300 nonfiction uh uh, like narrative nonfiction stories and some essays in there. And um, I did the Kickstarter earlier this year to raise the money to have the both like a combination of time and production cost to turn it into a giant ebook and it's done. Uh, so if you go to the magazine.com, there's a link to buy the darn thing. It's uh, 1800 pages in PDF form. Um, it's about almost 500,000 words. <laughs> It'll keep you busy for a while, and it's it's just this. It, we did this huge array of stuff. It was the idea was things that would be interesting to people who had a technical bent, like how they looked at the world, but that weren't necessarily about technology at all. And so we started out more tech focused, and then you know broadened to things like um, writing about goats that produce spider silk in their stomachs, and um, airport museums, and uh, solar power in Eastern Washington, and just lots of lots of things that. Um, we try to delve into it and find people's stories, but they were sort of about um, about things that uh, that were were sort of appealing and quirky, or the giant lava lamp that was never built. In, well, I, uh, I would hazard to say that Eastern that kind Washington. of that kind of describes the audience that's listening to this podcast. Excellent. Well, you will all week. love this book. Yes, I think so. Um, also, I think you're, you're back to podcasting regularly since the last time we talked. Uh, so, um, what 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 podcast can we hear you on? Oh yeah, I'm doing. I'm uh, the host of the MacWorld podcast, which is about to hit its 500th episode next year. I think we will. It's been. I was actually. It turned out I was the first guest when uh, on an intern who is now an Ars Technica writer, uh, Saroos Faravar, wanted to try out this podcasting thing. So I'm on episode number one over 10 years ago <laughs> of the podcast, and I'd been on it at various times in its history. And uh, then I've been the host since. Uh, March and I talk uh, typically with uh, MacWorld's executive editor Susie Oaks, and we talk about Apple stuff that happened in the week and related things, and bring on guests, and uh, it's a good time. So MacWorld.com, and the podcast is linked there. Excellent, uh, Glenn Fleischman. Thank you for being so generous and and coming back on the show. And as with the first episode that you did, this was just fantastic stuff, and I, I can't thank you enough. Oh well, thank you. I have a, I have a, I love having an outlet to talk about these things that make me crazy or interested. So I appreciate it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out: rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.